Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Michael Cross. Michael is the Global Head of Sovereign and Public Funds at HSBC Global Asset Management. This conversation is an incredible one as we talk to a former central banker um, around the history of the Asian crisis, the Russian crisis, the sovereign debt crisis, the GFC and COVID and how they're all different or similar in some cases. We seek to demystify the thinking behind central banks We talked to Michael about his role as a market outreach person uh, at the Bank of England. We talk about the differential between the real economy and financial markets. We get his perspective on the inflation deflation debate. We also then talk about a number of the risks in the marketplace and how investors can avoid blind spots. And we even talk about a couple of canary in the coal mine situations that investors need to be wary of in the next couple of years. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Michael, one of the things I really wanted to get your perspective on is is the, your background, and your background has an amazing um, array of experiences over the last twenty five years, from the the Asian crisis, the GFC, COVID, and probably the Latin American crisis. Can you give us a bit of background in terms of your experience across those last twenty five years? Yeah, I I spent. Sort of, I've, I've been I've been in three organisations, and as you say, I've, I've been lucky enough to um, be in some fairly interesting situations, including uh, probably more through luck than judgment, and maybe it was the bad luck of my employers that I was sort of at the sharp end of the operational response to to quite a few crises. So, I kind of started at the Bank of England in the early nineties, and I was one of the things I was responsible for was supervising some of our money market. Uh, intermediaries, um, and they had a really tough time during the ERM crisis when sterling fell out of the European exchange rate mechanism. Interest rates in the UK spiked up to twelve and at one point fifteen percent, and that was that was sort of my first experience of a of a financial crisis, um, which then led to a recession in the UK. Um, I joined the IMF in the late nineteen nineties, actually. To be precise, in July of 1997, um, and I was fortunate enough to be the private secretary of the managing director of the IMF, so that the head of the IMF, um, a great man called Michel Kamdasu. And within two weeks of me joining, um, Thailand um, needed a big IMF program, and that was the the beginning of the Asian crisis. So I saw that period through, you know, the big crises in Thailand. Indonesia, Korea, you know, the, the strains across the whole region. Um, and then the uh, the Russian default in 98. So that that was, you know, ex- first-hand experience um, of, a, of a genuinely global crisis that, that had a financial element. Uh, in 2007, I, I was put in charge of the Bank of England's uh, domestic currency balance sheet. And within six months, um, a big UK mortgage bank called Northern Rock uh, failed. And for us, that was the beginning of the global financial crisis. So so in the UK, that crisis began 
about a year before um, most people kind of would associate the beginning of the crisis, which was you know, September of 2008 with the with Lehman Brothers and AIG and, and, and the beginning of that, um, beginning of that episode. Um, so I, I did that for two, three years. Um, and then I, I was put in charge of the Bank of England and the UK foreign currency balance sheet. And, and to be honest, I thought that would be, um, you know, to a bit of a rest after the global financial crisis. And then immediately the, um, the aftershock of the global financial crisis was then the sovereign debt crisis in the euro area. And so I was on the front line of that, both in the UK, managing the UK's reserves, which had a lot of euro area exposure in them, and as part of the international central bank coordination, um, putting in place swap lines, dollar funding outside of the US, or those sorts of um kind of crisis management efforts. Um, so, so sort of first-hand experience with those crises. And then I joined HSBC in 2015. Um, and since then, I mean, it's a, yet a different perspective in the private sector, obviously. Um, but because of my role, I'm still in the central bank world. I'm still in the sovereign wealth fund world, still in the sovereign pension world. A lot of the, the people I spend time with are the people I've known for 25 years because there's a lot of overlap within those sectors so so i've sort of been associated with the institutions that have been managing you know the brexit crisis in the uk um and the more recently the COVID crisis but you know thankfully for me i've not been involved in putting together a policy response to the the most recent crises it's interesting, you know, if you if you think back, all these crises we would have thought are, are one in a hundred years events, and we've had four or five you just rattled off that have all happened in a very short amount of time. What have we actually learnt um, about the ability to maybe con- you know constrain some of the fallouts, you know, the contagion that seems to always happen in these crises? Have we got better at, at dealing with these problems? Yeah, I think we have in the sense that we do a pretty good job of fixing the problem that caused the crisis we've just been in um and then you know and then something else happens and i so i mean look after the asian crisis a lot of the lessons from that were around consistency of currency regime and monetary policy regimes um and you look at Asian balance sheets now, and they, they certainly learned the lesson from that crisis. Um, foreign exchange reserves are a lot higher. Um, economic governance generally is, is, a, is a lot stronger in Asia. Um, so, so definitely, you would say Asia looks a lot stronger post the Asian crisis. The GFC was kind of a funny one in that, you know, there's probably still an inquest going on now as to why, why didn't we see it coming um, and the fact is, we kind of did see it coming. We knew that the trends in financial markets before the crisis were unsustainable. What what none of us knew was that it was going to cause the entire banking system to come crashing down. So, you know, we knew there was a search for yield. We knew that banks were on the, an unsustainable path. But I, I think, you know, and I was responsible for a lot of the market outreach in the Bank of England. I, I think what we were thinking was, well, there could be a big hit to bank earnings. So the banks could be kind of repriced. They'd have an earnings event um, over a year or you know a few quarters. But you know nobody knew, nobody could figure out the way everything was interconnected. 
And so the scale of the problem and the interconnections were what brought the system down. Um, but did, were the lessons of that crisis learned? I, I would say they are. They were. Um, if you, I mean, banks have been massively re-regulated. So if the cause of the global financial crisis was an over-leveraged financial system, you know, you've only got to listen to any bank CEO on an earnings call, you know, and they're no longer, you know, the masters of the universe shooting for 25% ROE targets, which they were in the 2000s, they're struggling to get into double-digit returns on capital now, and that's not an accident, that's partly by design. The, you know, it was a very painful experience for central banks and finance ministries to go to prime ministers and presidents and electorates saying we need tens of billions of pounds or dollars or euros to bail out the banking system. And yes, they were given the money to bail out the banking system because, you know, it was needed, but it came with clear kind of conditionality that this must not happen again. Um, so, you know, there was a desire to re-regulate banks to make them a lot safer. Um, and I think, so I think that, that has been learned and the, the, the sort of, the, I mean, the COVID crisis is different because that's like genuinely, um, it's what, you know, we call an exogenous shock. It's, it's like, um, it's something that has come from outside the system that's hit the system. It's, it's, it's not not that the system has failed, it's like there's just been a public health emergency and that's had economic and financial consequences. So, you know, doubtless there will be some lessons to be learned by the financial system from COVID, but it's not like the GFC where you need to um, completely question the entire structure of the financial system. Can, can I go back to one particular thing that you mentioned, which was your role at the, the Bank of England, and you said that the role was market outreach. You know, I think for a lot of people, when they hear that, they, they're not sure what that means, right? They understand that central banks are these omnipotent uh, power that's out there um, that, that moves around. You know, what specifically as part of that role were you involved in? Are you talking with other banks, getting an understanding of the liquidity that's, that's moving through the system? Are you trying to find the pressure points? What, what does that mean? It, um, yeah, it, it's it's something that I think at the Bank of England, we, we pioneered that. Um, um, and, and, you know, the Fed, the New York Fed especially, uh, does a lot of that as well. But traditionally, central banks operate in money markets. They operate in foreign exchange markets. That's the, that's the kind of backyard for central banks is where they implement policy. So, you know, when I first was in the markets, area of the Bank of England, we were all over that. You know, we had people who whose job it was to do nothing other than talk to the FX market, talk to the money market. But then we, you know, we realized, especially London, you know, the major financial center of the world, it's not just those two core markets that you need to understand as a central bank. You need to understand that entire kind of ecosystem. Um, and it started off... Um, kind of wanting to understand the financial markets and interlinkages so that we could better understand how, you know, when the Bank of England changed interest rates, how did that feed through financial markets to the economy? And then it fairly quickly morphed into a kind of, you know, central banks are responsible for the stability of the financial system. Um, and they need to understand more about the structure of the financial system. Now, you know, we 
we've got far cleverer people than me that you know with with um massive numbers of higher degrees who can sit in an ivory tower and build you a model of the financial system and, and do you know both financial modeling system modeling look at balance sheets etc cetera, etc cetera. but you kind of need to complement that with with somebody who's out there talking to the market and just sort of getting the feel of it so it's like you know, you come down from your ivory tower, you go out into the markets and bazaars and you talk to the great unwashed and and you kind of, you know, get figure out what's going on, which then you can take back and the analytical people can analyze that. So, so I was asked to uh, sort of lead that under, under a man called Paul Tucker, who was, um, well, ultimately, he was the deputy governor of the Bank of England, and, and Mervyn King, who was then the governor, asked us to build a network. Um, so we obviously we had a network in London. We would travel to the US. We'd, we'd we'd go around New York two or three times a year. I would go to Asia, so Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai. Um, you know, we'd go around the Euro area. So we built up a kind of global network of market contacts. Um, and that, you know, that that was sort of how we figured out that, you know, 2006, 2007, what was going on was probably, you know, was unsustainable. There was going to be a correction. Um, but as I said before, we none of us knew that the scale of the correction was going to be a systemic crisis that brought down the whole system. But we were able to learn enough and ask enough questions and, you know, elicit the feedback from and the market players themselves, they were uncomfortable with what was going on, but they were kind of caught up in a caught up in a dynamic that, that they couldn't break out of. And you know, there's the famous Chuck Prince quote about the leverage loan market where someone said to Chuck Prince, who was CEO of Citibank, this is unsustainable, isn't it? And he said, Well, maybe, but as long as the music's playing, I've got to keep dancing. And you know, if I don't if I don't chase these return targets, I'll be fired and somebody else will. So that that was the sort of dynamic at the time, and we sort of figured that out. But you know, you can never predict a you know six or seven sigma event, I guess. Um, but you can have a pretty good sense that something wasn't quite right. It's interesting there your your quote about the music playing, and you just got to keep going with it. You know, I, I think about that in, in in line with the too big to fail from the bank point of view. And if we think about it even more recently, when we think about some of the valuation, particularly in the US. Of equity prices, it's almost that the valuation can can never go down, right? That valuation stocks are too high, um, they're too big, they're too high to fail, um, and so there's this, I guess, this perception that the central banks are speaking to traders and under trying to understand where the market structural problems are are happening for for that support to happen, you know. And I think there's this link or this perception out there in the marketplace that the central banks are either directly or, or even indirectly just through jawboning inflating asset prices. Uh, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on, on that as, a, as a, uh, an idea. Yeah, I, I think it, it – look, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not completely wrong, but, um, but I think it's a little unf- – I think the kind of crude version of that is probably a bit unfair. Um, so what – you know, the way – the way monetary policy works for a number of ways, but basically if you're easing policy, one of the things you expect is you you lower the risk-free rate. You'd expect that to pull down the discount curve. 
and that should mechanically feed through into into asset prices, not just financial asset prices, but obviously real asset prices as well. Uh, and that's part of the transmission mechanism of policy. Um, I think the sort of the dynamic now is um, look. I mean, we've had a really slow recovery from the from the GFC for, for various reasons. Um, you know, there was I think nobody expected everyone expected there'd be a slow recovery because you know we'd all read. Um, Rogoff and Reinhardt, and you know that you get a slow recovery from a balance sheet recession. So that was kind of priced in. But um, I think the sort of after a sh- aftershock effect of the euro area crisis and the persistence of that was a drag on the recovery globally. Um, and then even after that, it looked as if things were going to pick up, and it, it never really, you know, the synchronized recovery never really got momentum. Um, and so, so this perception that we're in more of a secular slowdown took hold. And there's not a lot monetary policy can do about a secular slowdown. Um, but given central banks have got an inflation target and they're missing their inflation target on the downside, even if they think it's not a heck of a lot we can do about this, they've got to do something. Uh, it's just the way political pressure works and we, we can talk about the policy mix later but so they're so they've got to stimulate and if you look at the profile of the recovery we did have it was extraordinarily reliant on on personal consumption and what was underpinning consumption growth everywhere was fairly strong growth in employment um but also the effect of rising asset prices improving people's balance sheets. So, you know, rising equity prices, rising house prices did a lot to repair personal sector balance sheets and that underpinned strengthening consumption and strengthening consumption was what was driving the recovery. So it's all a very long way of saying if 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 equity markets or financial markets fall a lot, there's a fairly good chance you're going to dip back into recession. So so yes, part of the policy mix is we can't really afford asset prices to to fall too far, otherwise the recession is is kind of in in peril. And, and that's as true of you know like house prices is of equity prices, and probably actually house prices are more significant than equity prices for the mass of the population. But it is clearly a feature of the equity market, and that's what gets commented on a lot. It sounds so, or it feels more so like a, a cold confidence game. I remember in the in the previous run up in in two thousand seven eight in the US with house prices, there was very much the link between house prices. If you if your house price was going up, you're wealthy, you're a little more likely to spend. It seems that the whole narrative around the media has changed to being the stock market, and maybe that's also because in the US the president's pushing uh, higher stock prices, that then leads to hopefully this confidence game that people feel that the economy is actually doing well because the the, the markets are reflecting good times and thus you know you can then c- continue to spend how much do you feel that you know this this idea around equity prices stimulating the real economy is is driven by this confidence game that not just central banks but even politicians are, are trying to push in terms of keeping people confident about the economy confident about jobs so that they do continue to spend given uh, the role of consumption in in GDP yeah, I, like I think it's I think it's part of it, um, and and I would say as as a sort of central bank technician, which is what I spent most of my life being, you know, pre pre GFC, we would laugh when people were 
reporting consumer confidence, we were saying, well, you know, what's consumer confidence telling us? Consumer confidence is is an output, not an input, right? So consumer confidence is a function of level of employment, pace of real pay rises, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not independently telling you anything at all. Um, and I think we're probably wrong about that um, in retrospect. Uh, I think confidence is consumer confidence and business confidence. Yeah, you can sort of certainly say, well, it's caused by the following factors and you could probably model it. Um, but it, it, it's also telling you something about, you know, it's just like canes and animal spirits, right? It's you, you get out of bed in the morning and, you know, it's the frame of mind you're in. Are you in a, in, in a mood to you know, go and buy a piece of capital equipment and, you know, shoot for higher returns in your business? Or are you in a mood to kind of hunker down and protect the balance sheet? So so I think in that sense, confidence does matter um, as much in a, in, a, in a business investment context as in a, in a consumer confidence spending context. And, and I think one of the, again, this is a topic that'll take hours and we don't have time to do it, but, but one of the puzzles in the, policy world was, you know, you're kind of holding rates down. And part of what you're trying to do is is keep the cost of capital for business down. And the thought process there was, well, if you keep the cost of capital down, you keep confidence high, business will invest and that will reinforce the recovery. And and, and the great puzzle was that that didn't happen. Um, so yes, you've got, um, you've got rising equity prices. Um, um, and low borrowing rates. And, you know, frankly, there's quite a lot of financial balance sheet engineering going on of um, buying back equity, leveraging up with, with, with cheap debt. But there's not a lot of seeing, you know, easy financial conditions translate into into much stronger business investment, or at least not not in a kind of a widespread way that people were hoping for. So, so I think confidence is is, is is kind of part of it on the on the investment side and the consumer spending side. It's interesting you raised there about companies being sort of unwilling to spend and and, and sort of moving towards financial reengineering um, to to utilise their capital more effectively. You know, what does that say about the potential recovery um, out of COVID? Um, and even prior to COVID, we were seeing a slowdown. Um, COVID has now accelerated a number of uh, themes um, around technical change, technology change, automation, and so forth. How do you think about the shape of the recovery since since the drawdown? Obviously, we saw in March from an equity point of view, and then the the play out of a number of industries going through a whole washout uh, due to COVID. How do you think about that more broadly? Yeah, I look at I, I'm. One of the joys of my job is that I'm a kind of top-down macro guy, and that's what I've always been. Um, so I'm a kind of rates, rates and currency guy. That's my my background and, and macro. Um, and since I've joined, you know, the private sector, I'm learning a lot about the equity market now. You know, as a policymaker, we just used to look at the equity market. Okay, what's the level of the equity market? different countries if we might you know you'd look at small caps against large caps you'd look at the international exposed sector against the domestic sector but but that was about as far as you got in looking at the equity market and I, i'm learning now to you know as you get into you know different sectors trends within sectors equity factors all of this sort of stuff which in my day and i think still probably central banks aren't um they're not all over that and, and that it that is telling you something i'm sure um, 
so in terms of shape of the recovery, I mean, it's, um, you know, people have got, you know, is it a U shape? Is it a V shape? Is it a K shape? What, what shape is it? I mean, from, from a, from a top down perspective, it, it's clearly a kind of a, it's in the shape of, you know, the Nike swoosh, I guess. There's a big leg down. There's an immediate bounce back. And then the profile of the recovery slows as, um, you know, economies gradually open up again. So you get a big bounce back in in the production sector and in manufacturing. And then where the social distancing is really causing problems in large parts of the service sector, that recovers more slowly. So you get this kind of Nike swoosh-shaped recovery um, as your as your best guess, I suppose. Um, so the issue now is, are we on the, you know, is the is the kind of recovery curve flattening out as we expected, or is it flattening out, maybe going to dip down again? I, you know, I don't have any special insight on that, but that's kind of big picture. I think that's what the state of the recovery is. And then, and then within the, within that recovery, you've got different profiles as different sectors recover at different rates. And the obvious, you know, look at the countries that have been hardest hit by COVID. It's, not no great surprise that it's the countries with the biggest service sector. So in the UK, we've been badly hit. In France and Spain, in Europe, you know, big service sectors, big tourist sectors, bit more hit than Germany, which is a big manufacturing sector, more hit than China, which is a big manufacturing sector. So, so that there's a kind of an obvious kind of service production sector kind of dichotomy. And, and then, the, I mean, the interesting stuff, which I think is, you know, what your question is implying is, well, within, even within sectors, what, what sort of stories can you tell and what can you look at? Um, and that's, and then you sort of, be, you're tapping then into a longer debate, I think. It's not just the recovery from, I mean, COVID is shining a light on divergent trends between and within sectors, but it, it's kind of, um, I think it's kind of, it, it, it's maybe it's exaggerating trends that were already in place. Um, so I, I look at, again, I'll switch back to top down mode. My, my good friend, Andy Haldane, who's um, chief economist at the Bank of England, he's done a lot of work on why has productivity growth slowed down so dramatically in the UK in the last 10 years relative to the previous 50, 60, 100 years. Because um, that's been a real puzzle. Um, why has productivity growth been so weak since the, the global financial crisis? And it's as true of other, it's true of other countries, not just the UK, but it's particularly marked in the UK. So Andy's looked into that. And, you know, what he discovers is there's a very small number of companies that are doing very well. Um, and there's no obvious sectoral pattern in that. There's no obvious regional pattern in that. You can have two companies in the same sector that are 50 miles apart, and one will be going great guns, and the other will be stagnating on any kind of metrics you look at it. And, and you know, part of the answer seems to be um, they're just adopting new technology at different rates. So, you know, we've got the so-called fourth industrial revolution, Um and, and oddly enough, you know, two companies doing the same thing just down the road from each other can can be 
adopting digital technology at radically different rates, and that seems to affect the outcome. Um, there's a kind of lack of labor mobility, so there's not the sort of churn of ideas through labor market turnover. And that, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, and as an aside, you know, I used to wonder what's the private equity business model. Well, you know, if there, if there are two companies in the same sector doing the same things with much the same workforce and one's doing a lot better than the other and you can figure out why that is, then, you know, you can presumably you can change the management and the ownership and, and, and you can adopt best practice. But it, it, so that, that's sort of part of part of this sort of sectoral puzzle as well. So yes, some sectors are clearly doing better than others and you can point to secular trends and say, well, it's, you know, they're benefiting from digital you know, so, you know, the Zoom or the, the Fangs or, or whatever. Um, some are kind of national champions. You know, some of the big Japanese corporations, some of the big US corporations, and they're kind of benefiting from, from network effects and, and just scale and size. Um, uh, but, but, but there's a genuine puzzle as to why, um, say, new technology is not being adopted at, at the kind of rate you'd expect it across across whole sectors. So, so there's, you know, there's multi-layered kind of puzzles. Do you think that there's a, a place maybe for monopsony to help explain that story? You know, you've got some very dominant large players um, that are the only suppliers in many towns and areas. Is that a potential uh, cause of this? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but, but prima facie, yes. I mean, there's enough people that say, there's enough people that are experts on that that make that point that that they clearly some you know some some companies are benefiting from from network scale effects um barriers to entry i know it's a live debate in europe with the us tech companies obviously so um so it's it, it must be part of the narrative yes but i think it's not the only thing that's that's going on i mean it, it is I'm becoming a bit of a nerd on this, but this this sort of pace of technology adoption thing is is fascinating. You look at because um, if you like, like for 750 years, living standards were stagnant between you know 1000 AD and 1750, and then you have the Industrial Revolution, which initially was steam engines, right? And and it takes about 50 years for steam engines to become a universally adopted technology. 150 years later, you invent the, you know, the internal combustion engine. That doesn't take 50 years to be adopted globally. It's more like five or ten. And, and so the pace of diffusion of new technology has been speeding up since the industrial revolution. And now with the um, with the sort of digital revolution, it seems that there are kind of it, it's kind of slowing down, or it may be slowing down. So that that's. You know, I find that fascinating, and I'm probably more fascinated by it than is justified by the facts. But it, it's, you know, once you start looking at what's driving corporate behavior, corporate performance, getting into the guts of the equity market, you, you kind of get sucked into some of these stories. I'm curious around the, the links between the pace of change, the technological change that you describe, um, and the monopsony power as well, and what impact that has on potential inflation or deflationary potentially forces you know, how do you think about that trade-off because when i th- when i think about the technological change that you describe to me that's very deflationary 
um, the amount of uh, cha- uh, the amount of lowering of interest rates is also quite deflationary, I would say, um, because it allows companies to produce now at cheaper rates, and it also allows companies to be losing money for five, ten, in some cases like Amazon for almost twenty years, where they make nothing, um, n- no profits, and it, ultimately that allows them to build their business, and that's deflationary. How do you think about the current maybe? macro environment in terms of low rates and then this corporate environment with so much te- technological change how does that play out on the inflation deflation debate look i mean what <laughs> what you've just said it, it's it, it's both fascinating and i think it's one of the big debates in the certainly in the official world at, at the moment um Exactly to your point around is is kind of low rates, negative rates, is that in some sense deflationary rather than stimulatory is one strand. And there's a lot of disagreement, I think, in the central banking world about that. And then the other strand of it is, you know, to what extent is disinflation caused by technological progress or supply side reform? And it's, you know, I can remember, I mean, the Japanese have been trying to raise inflation for 25, 30 years. And, and they're, you know, they're really smart people and they work hard. Uh, and they, you know, they've tried a lot of things and they thought hard about it and they haven't managed to generate inflation anywhere near where they want it. So and one of the explanations they, they talk about is, well, a lot of supply-side reform causes disinflation in the short term because relative prices move. So you deregulate a market, producers have got less power, you introduce more more competition in the market and the level of prices of output falls. Um, you know, you know probably better than I do, you know, Moore's law and computer technology, et cetera, et cetera. So so the you know, the price of a lot of consumer goods that are based on electronics have, have been falling in nominal terms and that's due to technical progress. Now you, you can try and Sort of hedonically adjust your price levels, your price measures, but 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 even so, there's a there's what the Japanese call good good deflation, I suppose, which is due to positive supply side performance. Um, it's clearly part of the story. Uh, and then uh, you know the say so there's this debate within central banking as to particularly about negative rates as to whether that is in the long run going to be a stimulatory thing or whether it's whether it's not. And, you know, the people currently doing the jobs, I think, um, in the central banks would, you know, would, would give the orthodox response, which is that if you cut real rates, that should be stimulatory. Um, interestingly, if you talk to the generation above this generation, um, so I was at a conference recently with Jacques de la Rosière, who was governor of the Banque de France in the early 1990s, head of the IMF in the late 1980s. And, you know, he's sort of 95 and amazingly still thinking and active. And and he would argue that negative rates or very low rates are ultimately deflationary. So largely for the reasons you give, it doesn't give businesses the incentive to, to, to innovate. Um, it means that if consumers... Well, people, that's an important consumer, that's golden people. If people are saving, saving for retirement, then clearly if 
if rates are low, expected returns on asset classes are low, you've got to save more in the short term to hit your savings target. And that is, you know, that sort of substitution effect is is deflationary rather than inflationary. So, so that debate is, it, it sort of rages within the within the ivory tower, I guess. I, it, it doesn't sort of permeate so much beyond, but uh, but you know, it, it, it's it, it's part of the picture as well. I guess the other challenge that comes up, where, you know, and, and why central banks are pushing for so much inflation, or at least getting above two percent, even inflation, is the debt load is so large. Um, and I think they're worried about how to manage that that debt load. Um, and we hear a lot of talk about this modern monetary theory coming through uh, and whether that can help. We, we seem to be seeing even just the remnants of it already, um, that, that it's out there. I, I guess the question is whether that will be effective. And then the other piece I think that a lot of, I think, institutional investors are worried about is if they start uh, which is if uh, they being the central bank start giving digital dollars to actually people, you know, would that be the, the, the kicker to start driving inflation? You know? So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, particularly around, you know, this, the, the, the worry for inflation with such low interest rates, um, the convexity or the change there that we see can be so significant to institutional investors that have very long duration assets. So, if you could talk to the MMT and, and maybe the digital dollar piece and whether that could drive inflation, uh, and then we'll we'll go back to the piece around uh, long duration assets. Yeah, I mean that once you start talking about that, you it, it's it's sort of you can have a theological debate about whether you're talking about monetary policy or fiscal policy at that point. And um, so, um, you know, remember that there was a few years ago people were saying central banks are the only game in town, right? Um, and and I, I think you know, Mohammed, not the prophet, Mohammed El-Aryan actually wrote a book with that as the title, you know, are central banks the only game in town? And, and that was, you know, in the sort of central bank circles I was in, we'd been talking about that for, for a while. And, and I think that, I mean, the kind of the, the bigger insight is not are they the only game in town, it's that... They're the fastest gun in town. Um, uh, so when the trouble starts and something needs to be doing, the central bank is going to do it a lot quicker than um, than governments are, either through fiscal policy or structural policy, because central banks have got a balance sheet. They're in the markets every day. They've got a transparent inflation target, and they've got a whole bunch of tools they can use to stimulate the economy. So, So they're the fastest gun in town. And they become the only gun in town because um, politically it's very difficult for, for for politicians to to do the to make the changes that arguably they should be making. And, and you know, famously in Europe, um, Jean Claude Juncker, who was most recently president of the European Commission, but when he was prime minister and finance minister of Luxembourg, he came out of a Eurogroup meeting, and the journalist said to him. You know, the ECB has done this, this, and this. Um, why is all the pressure on the ECB? Why aren't you guys doing anything? Don't you know what to do? And, and the answer, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, he, what he said was, well, yeah, of course we know what to do. What we don't know is how to get ourselves re-elected after we've done it. Um, so so there is this dynamic that it just puts the central bank, you know, fastest gun in the town, or it makes them the only game in town because the politics of... Fiscal policy are harder. So, 
uh, so I'm not trying to avoid the question. So, so then you talk to the fiscal policy makers, and of course they know that that the that the monetary policy is largely played out, and um, you know the onus is on them to come up with a fiscal response in a lot of ways, um, and to and to introduce kind of structural measures that might get us out of the slump. But it is politically very hard to do, and you know, as everybody knows, and it's obvious, electorates everywhere are kind of angrier and angrier, and that just makes politically difficult things harder to to do. The, the interesting thing about COVID, and I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, is because it's a shock that's come out of almost clear blue sky, or or it's, it's a shock that's come from outside the system. It, it sort of makes it easier to do things that previously were politically just almost impossible. So, so like the European Recovery Fund, we now got a proposal for fiscal transfers within the euro area, and the size of that is only like five percent of euro area GDP, which, which you'd think is, you know, in terms of the scale of what might be needed, doesn't sound like a lot, but in terms of the scale of what might have been possible two years ago, it's an enormous amount. So, so this is all a long way of saying that you know before you get to MMT or really quite off-the-wall solutions. There's an awful lot of conventional things that can be done, but the politics needs to shift before those things can be done. Um, so I think you'll get, you know, you're clearly going to get more conventional fiscal policy before we get unconventional fiscal policy. And, and I would classify, you know, helicopter money as... You know, whatever we want to talk about as unconventional policy, that that is that sort of unconventional fiscal monetary policy mix. You can people they'll want to exhaust the conventional options before they um, before anything unconventional is tried. So, specifically to the question about um, for for asset owners, institutional investors. You know, when they think about their allocations being a long-term investor, they've typically got long-duration assets. Should they be worried about the inflation um, piece of the puzzle starting to pick up in the next, I guess, medium term? Or, or do you feel that things are, are still going to take quite a while to, to play out given the current uh, COVID situation? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I would have said before COVID, I was saying the same thing, and I, I still say the same thing now. It, it is hard. I mean, people. Yes, people worry about inflation. They worry that inflation risk is underpriced, and you know, actually, deflation risk is, and inflation risk both look look underpriced. And I, I kind of get that. Um, but um, if you say, what do you expect over the next five years? I wouldn't expect inflation in developed economies. Now, we have to be kind of quite precise about what do we mean by inflation. By inflation, I think we mean kind of a persistent rise in prices, usually caused, you know, typically, almost always caused by pressure of excess demand on supply. So you can get what people call inflation as a result of a currency depreciation. But that really, yes, I mean, mechanically, prices rise because the relative price of internal and external prices change, but it doesn't necessarily cause persistent inflation. Um, so is are we going to get inflation caused by excess demand weighing on the supply side? I, I honestly don't think we are. I find it hard to see the conditions 
for that um, over yeah three to five years and beyond that you know who knows but um, but it did, so, so I, you know I think what so, so yes investors including investors in Australia I've been talking with Australian asset owners recently and they're worried about inflation as not quite a tail risk. It's not part of the central case, but it's not quite just a tail risk either. It's somewhere in the kind of how do we plan for this? And, and it usually goes with, I think, the point you've made, which is, you know, how do we we look at the construction of the portfolio, government bonds are the kind of the risk-free asset. How comfortable are we with our government bond allocation given real yields? You know, how much more scope is there for prices to rise, yields to decline, so that that's sort of on their minds, and but um, you know, I, I it, it wouldn't be part of the sort of central case. I don't think. I think we're into kind of risk risk planning, and and, and there, you know, you're, it's always the case that um, people have got different views on the risk. So I, you know, I pick up different strands from different investors in different parts of the world. So, so final question, and it comes back to to risk planning. Um, and that is, you know, investors can be often blindsided by a lot of things. Um, given the amount of people you've spoken to over the last 25 years and, and more recently, what are maybe some of the blind spots that investors ha- have, have missed or that need to be at least paying attention to, um, you know, in the next you know, three to five years? I know we've got a U.S. election coming up, but beyond that, um, what, what are some of the, th- the areas maybe for them to, to watch? I think it's... Um I mean, yeah, I mean, the, obviously political risk, geopolitical risk. I mean, <laughs> one of the things you find as you get older is that people say, oh, there's a lot of geopolitical risk. And, well, do you know what? There always is. There's always geopolitical risk. There's always political risk. And, and um, it, it, it's just something, you, you know, you just have to live with. Um, so that's always there. And you can't really, honestly, it's it's not, it's generally, it's, not risk it's it's uncertainty and it's very hard to model uncertainty um so in terms of so i I would kind of characterize it is there is almost a nailed on consensus as to what is the central outlook for the next three to five years And, and the interesting discussions are around what are the risks and so i wouldn't say that it's obvious i mean i'd be as blind as anyone but you know are is there an obvious blind spot not really i think you know, we're all thinking about the right things, um, but it—it's it, you can never you can never kind of get the exact scenario right for when the when the risk hits, and 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 it's the kind of the interlinkages between things. So, as I said, I, I think. I think everyone was surprised by the extent of the euro area sovereign crisis after the GFC. And in retrospect, you can make sense of it. Everyone was surprised. You know, who, who would have thought in 2006 that, you know, World Bank of Scotland, Citibank would, you know, would, would effectively fail. You know, you just, so it, it's, it's, it's those things that, that kind of combine the, um, that trip, trip you up, whether as investors or, you know, running a bank, um, but I don't, we're not blind to any of the individual risks. I don't think it, it's just how will the risks play out and how might they combine is is the difficult thing. Um, so not not a satisfactory answer, I'm afraid. But I, you know, in terms of how are we running our business? I mean, we're kind of running our business in the way that 
is in line with the consensus everybody else has got, which is, you know, expecting slow growth in developed economies, expecting investors to access developed economies through kind of, you know, passive type beta capturing kind of vehicles, um, expecting Asia particularly to grow stronger, expecting um, investors to be prepared to pay for managers who can find excess returns in, in Asian and emerging markets, um, expecting, uh, you know, the kind of move into alternatives to continue um, because, you know, there's liquidity premium, complexity premium that, that are, you know, still there to be still there to be had. Now, all of that implies we're in this kind of coupon clipping environment where there's very little market volatility, very little macro volatility going forward. And, and you know, everyone is in a, as I say, a coupon clipping, premium harvesting kind of a mode. And, and I think, you know, we're running our business on the expectation that that's what's going to happen. And I think that's the central case for most of the investors we talk to. I have two particular pieces of risk that that I look to. One being the the uh, swap lines, the US dollar swap lines, and, and what's happening there is is of interest. Uh, and the second one being foreign exchange. You know the quite large movements we've seen of, of late in, in the in US to euro uh, translation, US to Australian dollar. There are just two ones that I look at. Um, and given the amount of central bank influence on markets uh, and the amount of fiscal policy and the managed economies that we're seeing, it seems as though the FX is the blow-off valve for, for these pieces. So they're the two areas that that I always keep an eye on and see yeah. the volatility. Just wanted to get your final thoughts on, on those two. No, the, 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 FX, the FX swap was exactly, that was my canary in the coal mine when I was in the, in the central bank. And that, when that started to, to move, you knew that, you know, risk, risk was risk appetite was changing. So absolutely, yeah, that's that that is the it is the canary in the coal mine is is are those FX swap rates. Um and and, and it's just an aside, I mean the you know we we ran I, I was chairing a, a load of client panels that we did in in sort of June, July talking about how investors manage through the crisis. And we had um we had a man called Simon Potter who's a good friend of mine who was head of markets at the at the Federal Reserve uh, until very recently on the panel. And, and we were kind of, you know, a lot of the investors were making the point that, you know, they were really phased by how liquidity dried up in March in dollar markets, especially onshore and offshore, so through the, the swap, swap markets. And, and, you know, kind of given all the rhetoric coming out of the U.S., the Dodd-Frank Act, you know, how was it going to be, what were the U.S. authorities going to do? And everybody was really kind of pleasantly, I would say, in many cases, surprised that the that the Fed and the Treasury acted as quickly as they did to, you know, resurrect all the crisis area era facilities domestically, reinstate the swap lines, extend the swap lines. So, so absolutely, that's kind of the... That's the key vulnerability in the system, um, and you know, it's just enormously kind of encouraging that, um, despite everything coming out of the US over the last decade, um, you know, they run the global reserve currency. They're kind of aware of the responsibility they've got, and they're on the case. And um, so, yeah, big vulnerabilities there. But I think the 
you know, the fat has got their arms around it. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Michael. Okay, Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.